Showcase Sundays today on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. First you feel the tremulous rumbling, then the faint smell of sulfur smoke. The spectral tracks appear in the mist, and the red light, like a demon's eye, cuts through the darkness. Screaming down the track, the transcontinental terror is making its nightmarish run. Dead Man's Hate by Robert E. Howard They hanged John Farrell in the dawn amid the marketplace. At dusk came Adam Brand to him and spat upon his face. O neighbors all, spake Adam Brand, see ye John Farrell's fate. Tis proven here a hempen noose is stronger than man's hate. For heard ye not John Farrell's vow to be avenged upon me? Come life or death, see how he hangs on the gallows tree. Yet never a word the people spoke, in fear and wild surprise, for the grisly corpse raised up its head and stared with sightless eyes. And with strange motion, slow and stiff, pointed at Adam Brand, and clambered down the gibbet tree, the noose within its hand. With gaping mouth stood Adam Brand like a statue carved of stone, till the dead man laid a clammy hand hard on his shoulder bone. Then Adam shrieked like a soul in hell, the red blood left his face, and he reeled away in a drunken run through the screaming marketplace. And close behind, the dead man came with a face like a mummy's mask. And the dead joints cracked, and the stiff legs creaked with their unwanted task. Men fled before the flying twain, or shrank with bated breath. And they saw on the face of Adam Brand, the seal set there by death. He reeled on buckling legs that failed, yet on and on he fled. So through the shuddering marketplace, the dying fled the dead. At the riverside fell Adam Bran, with a scream that rent the skies. Across him fell John Farrell's corpse, nor ever the twain did rise. There was no wound on Adam Bran, but his brow was cold and damp. For the fear of death had blown out his life as a witch blows out a lamp. His lips were writhed in a horrid grin like a fiend's on Satan's coals. And the men that looked on his face that day, his stare 
still haunts their souls. Such was the fate of Adam Brand, a strange, unearthly fate. For stronger than death or hempen noose are the fires of a dead man's hate. Transcontinental train is expected to arrive here, where it leapt off the tracks and into legend. What caused the terror train to derail? No one can quite say. Perhaps it was a prank that damaged the lines. Perhaps it was a lost love demanding vengeance upon a passenger. Perhaps it was a tired engineer who drowsed at a critical instant. It's been nearly ten years, and the transcontinental's demise asks more questions than it answers. I'm the Railway Hobo. In tonight's final run, we already heard Robert E. Howard's immortal poem, Dead Man's Hate read by Jack J. Ward. But as the train approaches, we'll continue with Quiet Please from KACL Old Time Radio Players, a recreation of an ancient event in history. Quiet Please. Quiet Please. The KCAL Old Time Radio Troupe presents an episode of Quiet Please. Tonight we hear The Evening and the Morning from 1948, written by Willis Cooper. They're all gone now, aren't they? That was the last car going out of the gate, wasn't it? There's nobody here but the gravediggers. Can we walk over there for a minute, please? It's getting dark, isn't it? Is that what's bothering you? There isn't anything here that'll hurt you. My grandfather always taught me not to be afraid of cemeteries. They're sad places, he always said. They're sad, and they're lonesome. But there's nothing there to harm you. It'll only be a minute, really. I... I'm not going to break down or anything like that. It's... Well, there's something I have to do. No, I won't run away. You're not worried about that, are you? Well, after all, you've got a gun. You'd shoot me if I tried to run away. I couldn't very well attack you suddenly, could I? Not with these handcuffs... Of course not. So let's walk over there for just a minute. 
please. Don't you think you're overdoing it a little bit, Dean? Well, I'm sorry if you think so. I do think so. Please, may we walk over to the grave? Listen here. You don't have to impress me, you know. I was good enough to bring you out here and take the responsibility for you. And I'm very grateful to you for that, Mr. Thorpe. You know, if some of her friends had seen you here, you'd have stood a good chance of getting lynched. I know that. I was sympathetic and I listened to you. It was against my better judgment that I brought you out here. Well, I'm more than grateful, Mr. Thorpe. If I could have come out here alone, though, I would have. Well, we haven't started letting confessed murderers run around loose yet. Especially to attend the funerals of the people they've killed. May we walk over to the grave, please? Oh, come on. Thank you. You're not doing yourself any good this way, Dean. Oh, I'm not trying to, Mr. Thorpe. What do you want to see the grave for? How can you stand looking at it? Haven't you any heart at all? I killed her, didn't I? They won't have any trouble hanging you for it. Well, I expect that. Well, what do you want, then? Why do you... This isn't easy, Mr. Thorpe. It it was hard enough doing what I did. And coming out here, well, it has to be done. I don't know what you're talking about. I... I loved Alice, Mr. Thorpe. You did? I did. And you murdered her. Here, where are you going? A flower. That's all. I want a flower from her grave. Put that back. No. No, I won't put it back, Mr. Thorpe. I tell you... No, please, don't ask me to put it back. This... Well, this is a very precious thing, this flower. What are you talking about? By this... This is why I murdered Alice, Mr. Thorpe. It's very good of you to walk back with me instead of riding. It's really a great favor, Mr. Thorpe. And... I might as well tell you it's... Well, I would have insisted on walking if you hadn't agreed so readily. It's just that... You see, if you hadn't consented, I've just stayed out here. And it would have been awkward for you because I... Well, I think I'm stronger than you. And if I could have resisted you... I don't believe you would have used your gun. Even if you had threatened me, I wouldn't have moved. So I'm very grateful to you because... It's important for me to walk back. It's the last walk in the open air you're likely to have. Yeah, I suppose it is. You're a strange character, Dean. Well, you're rather unusual yourself, sir. Walking peacefully down a dark road with a murderer and all alone. You may not have noticed, but I've got my hand in my coat pocket. Mm, so you have. And in my coat pocket is a gun. Of course. So... Let's not get any ideas, because I've been stupid enough to humor you a little. Oh, I have no intention of trying to escape. Thank you. Did you ever walk along a cemetery road before? No. Well, I have. And I know every inch of it. Morbid. No. First time was with Alice. The woman you killed? Yes. I, I walked back with her from her husband's funeral. A year ago. So now you're walking back from hers. Did you kill him, too? Why, no. Don't you remember? He was killed in a motor accident. Oh, yes. Uh, Francis. That was his name. Francis. 
Yes. Were you uh, in love with Alice then? Oh, I, uh, I think I've always been in love with Alice. I see. But Alice loved Francis. I begin to see a motive now. Motive? For murdering her. She was still in love with her husband. She wouldn't have you, so you killed her. No. What? No, that wasn't my motive. What was then? I remember walking along the same road, Alice and I, a year ago. Just a year ago, day before yesterday. It was the same kind of evening, too. Cold and misty. Threatening snow, like it is now. We'd stayed there at the cemetery after everyone else had gone. Alice and I. And now we're coming back home. Francis would have liked the flowers. Wouldn't he, Dean? Yes. So many, many flowers. Such beautiful ones. So bright and lovely. The cold rain on them. Pretty soon the snow. Alice? Francis. And the flowers. All alone. Dean, let's go back for a little while. Can't we? Oh, no, no. We, we mustn't do that, Alice. It's just come to me, Dean. I, I'm alone. I... I all this time, I thought... I, I mean... I couldn't help thinking that it was some ghastly joke. That Francis isn't really dead. It's... It's a dream, maybe, and now... Oh, Dean, he is dead, and I'm alone. <laughs> yes, dear. Don't. We've got to face it. You... Francis. Francis is dead. All I've got left is a flower from his grave. Alice, you're not alone. I'm... Well, I know I'm not. I... But you're not alone while I'm... Alice, you're not alone. Look, Dean. The little yellow flower. The little yellow moss rose that Francis always loved so much. He was born and he lived. And he loved me and I loved him. And now there's nothing left but this. Oh. Alice, will you listen to me? Alice, will you stop this? It's, it's no good carrying home a flower from... From there. Well, it's just a little symbol. It'll break your heart all over again every time you look at it. But but it was from his... No, 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 no don't say it. Don't carry home any reminders from that place, dear. I know this is hard, but now is the time for you to make decisions. Not years from now, when you should be forgetting. That little rose, it'll always remind you. It'll always hurt you. It'll do terrible things to you, Alice. Just throw it away. Throw away Francis's flower? It isn't his flower, Alice. But I... I need something to remind me. Do you need anything to remind you of Francis, Alice? You have your memories of five years of being married to him. You have all the things he wrote, the music he loved. You have so many precious memories, dear. And you're going to trade them all in for... For a memory of a mound of flowers on a November day in the rain? I... I remember Francis when he came home from the war. And the day you were married. I remember. He was so tall. I remember both of you. And the time we went to Canada. And it snowed. You remember Francis. Not the flower. 
and the springtime in the country with him and the times he helped me wash the dishes. Throw the flower away, Alice. Here, Dean. You throw it away for me. I want to, but I'm afraid. Throw it away, Dean, and let me keep Francis in my heart. There's an old elm tree beside the road. The biggest old elm tree you ever saw. We'll be walking past it in a few minutes and I'll show it to you, Mr. Thorpe. You certainly talk as if you loved that woman, Dean. Oh, I did love her. I do love her. Well, why did you kill her then? <sighs> because I loved her. <laughs> and because she loved Francis. I said that was it. Oh, no, no. You're right in what you said about you're not forming the wrong conclusions, Mr. Thorpe. How? You think that I murdered her in a fit of anger because she refused to marry me? Of course. Well, that isn't true. I don't understand you. Oh, I'll explain it all to you. It doesn't need much explaining to me. I'll, I'll explain it. Well, what happened? Did your idea about throwing away the flower work? Yes, of course. But you're carrying away a flower from her grave. Yeah. Why? Yeah, perhaps I want my memories of Alice to be that grave out there in the rain. Adding to your own punishment? Yeah, that's part of it. I realize that I must pay a price for what I've done. I'll do that gladly. And I mean that. I mean, I'm really glad to pay for it. But, well, I hope you believe me. I want to punish myself even more. But I haven't finished. I've got one more thing to do. That's why I begged you to let me come to the funeral and why I plucked the flower from her grave. You're over my head, Dean. Bear with me, Mr. Thorpe. If you... It's only for a little while. Up there, there, that. That's the big elm tree I told you about. You see it? There's a little street light just beyond it. What about it? Well, there's a bus stop just beyond it. We can, uh... We can wait there for a bus if you'd like. Yes. I see somebody waiting there now. I think it's a good idea. I'm tired. I wish you'd tell me, though, why you did do it, Dean. Not that it'll make any difference. Not with your confession and all that. Mr. Thorpe, are you superstitious? Me? No. It's nonsense. <laughs> no, it isn't nonsense. A great many superstitions are founded on fact. A great many. I don't believe in ghosts, if that's what you mean. Well, you know, Francis was a writer. Yes. A writer of supernatural stories. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He had a, a very fair understanding of superstitions, beliefs of all kind. He had a large library of source material on that subject. Did he believe in ghosts? Oh, he was a rational man, Mr. Thorpe, and my very good friend. All right. I saw a good deal of Alice in the years since Francis was killed. In the first few months, when she was having to reconstruct her life, when she was having to reconcile herself to the fact that she was alone, that, that Francis was gone out of her world, well, I spent a good deal of time with her. And I was gratified that she was taking it very well. Well, she did the house over completely. 
with the exception of the room that he used for a study. Now that, she left exactly as he'd left it. Typewriter, stack of paper, pottery jar full of sharpened pencils, half a pack of cigarettes, torn match package, even the wastebasket crammed full of torn sheets of paper. Exactly the way he'd left it. That, she said, was to her living memory of Francis. And always, when I came to visit her, we'd sit in Francis' study, and the talk was mostly of him. His publisher's called today. Wondered what about the book he was working on. What, what about it? I told him it wouldn't be finished. Well, he had only a few pages to go, as I remember it. It won't be finished. I don't think you ought to do that, Alice. I want it that way, Dean. Do you still feel... I mean... I'm very glad you made me throw away that flower, if that's what you mean. It was an ugly thing, bringing it away from there. Yes. I'm very content now. It's been hard to make myself realize that, you know, it's not really so bad when there are people around. But at night, alone by myself, I... I think I've cried myself out, Dean. Well, I'm glad you're... You've been an angel. Well... You have. Well, you see, Alice, I love you. I know you do. I... Well, that's all I can say, Alice, is I love you. It's... It's a horrible thing to have to say to the widow of my best friend, but... Widow! Well, Alice... Widow, you said. But, Alice... You called me his widow. I'm not. I'm not. Stop. No, no. Get away from me. I'm not his widow. Do you hear me? I'm Francis's wife. Where's that fellow that was waiting for the bus? Did he go away? You see him? Yes, I saw him. So, she did get mad at you, huh? Hmm? Well, don't you think you were rushing things a little, Dean? Don't you think you should have waited a little longer before you put in a word for yourself with his widow? His wife. No, Mr. Thorpe. I always knew that Alice would never marry me. I, I knew too much of the deep love and affection that existed between those two. And, and I knew that I'd never have a chance with her. But in all, well, in all honesty, I, uh, I couldn't help confessing to her. She said she knew how you felt. Yes, she did. Well, I don't see where this story is getting us, Dean. And besides, here's your tree, and I'm going to sit down and wait for a bus wonder where that other fellow went. Francis loved music, although he couldn't play a note. Alice, in the old days, would sit at the piano at nights when he found himself struggling with an idea that wouldn't come out. Francis always said that if he could listen to Alice playing long enough, that well, the toughest situation would unravel itself. I think that was a fact. Many a night, I've sat in the living room listening to her at the piano while Francis listened from his study. I remember one thing he used to love. Alice played it so often for him that people used to laugh and call it their theme song. 
One night, not very long ago, I dropped in to see Alice. And after a while, she sat down at the piano and played it. I hadn't heard it for so long. Long time since I played that, isn't it, Dean? Oh, it still sounds wonderful to me. I felt so lonesome tonight. Yeah, it's an unpleasant night. Like it was a year ago. Out there in... You are going to think of that. I can't help it, Dean. Play something else. I... I wonder if Francis is lonesome, too. Alice. No, I've been dreaming about him, Dean. Well, I suppose that's natural. He's always trying to tell me something. It's so vague, but he, he's lost, and he wants me so. You're morbid tonight. No, no, I'm not, Dean. I thought I was getting over missing Francis, Dean. But I'll never get over it. I'll never forget him. But I can't forget. You must forget him, dear. No, I won't forget him. He's my husband. I love him. I love him. Alice, dear, you mustn't. No, Dean. I want him so. You've never lost anyone, Dean. You don't know how it is. And now, these last few weeks, I don't know how Francis lost me. You're not being rational, Alice. But I love him, Dean. Oh, isn't there some way... Now, Alice... Well, I mean it. Dean, listen. Well? Francis had so many books... Wouldn't there be something in one of them that might tell me how to bring Francis back to me? Alice! Or some way I could find him, Dean? Alice, sit down and stop this. Dean! Well? Dean, do you love me? You know I do. I'll never marry you. Well, I hope that someday... No, it, it's sacrilege to even think it. I'm Francis's wife. I'll be Francis's wife forever, forever and ever. Well, darling... Wait. Dean, as surely as I'm sitting here, I swear to you I'll always love Francis. Yes. And I... I can't live without him. What do you mean by that? I've thought about it. I've thought about it until my head hurts. You think I'm losing my mind, don't you? No. Dean, I won't marry you. Yes, you said that. But do you want to earn my... Everlasting gratitude and Francis's gratitude, too. I, I don't understand you. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. No, I won't do it. Listen, Dean. If I kill myself, then that'll be a sin, won't it? Yes. And I won't go to heaven and be with Francis, will I? No. Then, will you do it? Alice, you've lost your mind. No! I... You said you loved me. Then prove it. Give me back to Francis.
That's a great story, Dean. That's a great story. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's not the story you told when they arrested you. No. So you shot her because she asked you to? No. Well, what do you mean? Well, I went away from the house that night. I was very disturbed. Sleep? No, I couldn't sleep. About three in the morning, I telephoned her. We talked for a long time. She was much calmer. She agreed that she'd been very foolish. And we'd talk it all over again later in the day. I took two bromides and slept till noon. Then, in the afternoon, she telephoned me and woke me up. Come over right away, she said. Come over now, hurry. When I came in, she was holding a book. She seemed perfectly calm, but had obviously been crying for a long time. She was exhausted. What's happened, Alice? I asked. What's the matter? Sit down, Dean. What is it? What's, what's that book? It's one of Francis's books from his reference library. Oh? Dean, when you left here last night, I got to thinking some more about what I'd said first. That maybe there was something in one of Francis's books that could tell me how to bring us together again. Alice, I, I thought that... Be still. I went in there, and I looked at a lot of books. Some of them I couldn't even understand, but I found one. I found this one. What is it? Dean, you murdered Francis. I what? You murdered his soul. Alice, what are you talking about? Do you remember the flower from his grave? Yes, yeah, of course. Look at the book. Dictionary of Superstitions and Mythology. Bonerger, Paris, 1927. Well, what about it? Page 101. I marked it. Read it. Flowers. If a flower be plucked from the grave, then afterwards thrown away, the place where the flower falls will be haunted. Alice, what is this? It's true, Dean. It's superstition, for heaven's sake. It's true. Oh, now, come on now. It's true. How do you know? Because I went out to the cemetery road, and I went to the elm tree where you threw the flower away almost a year ago. You went? When did you go there? This morning, while it was still dark. This morning? And it's truth, I know. Francis is there, chained to that spot forever and ever. Oh, Dean, what are we going to do? We did it, you and I. What are we going to do? And what did you do? I... I did what I thought best. You mean to say you believe in a stupid superstition? You mean you murdered the woman because of... Because of... I came out here to this tree with Alice, Mr. Thorpe. You did? And I knew Francis was here, too. He's here now. You're... you're... You saw him, didn't you? The man you thought was waiting for the bus? I... Here, where are you going? I threw away a flower from his grave a year ago. 
Now here's your flower, Alice. I kept my promise, dear. Alice and Francis. Together now. Forever. You don't believe that. Listen. The old ways are usually best, but the sound of silence from Brianna Taylor brings a fear all its own. Welcome to Fast Fiction. The Sound of Silence The shrill discord of the telephone disturbed the early Saturday morning. It was the third call, and still not yet nine o'clock. Barbara? Phone! Robert Jarvis was perched precariously on a ladder, very much aware of being fifty-something. Barbie, phone. Can you get it? I'm busy at the moment. Robert's voice showed his irritation. He was hot and tired and would rather be doing anything other than putting up fairy lights around the patio. And when he was done, Barbara had another rotten job for him. Cleaning away all the pot plants to make room for the hundred or so guests expected to arrive in another few hours. And after that, heaven knew what. His wife's light footsteps could be heard running through the house. Okay, I'm on to it. Robert felt guilty. Truth to tell, she probably had more to do than he had. But then again, she enjoyed this sort of thing. After all, Janie had made it quite clear that she would have preferred celebrating her 21st with friends at Mount Isaac, where she'd been teaching since graduating. But Barbara had been insistent that, as it was the holidays, she come home to share her birthday with her family. Hello, Barbara speaking. It's me. 500 kilometres from Brisbane, Janie Jarvis prepared for the tirade she knew was coming. She was not disappointed. Janie, where are you? We were expecting you to call last night. What's happened? Nothing, Mum. Hold your horses. Janie looked at the clock on the dashboard and bit her lip. Her parents had every reason to be annoyed. See, yesterday I found I had made good timing to Long Reach, so decided to divert a little and call in and see Lexi and Trevor out in the burbs. And we got talking... And drinking? Yes, we got drinking. Well, a bit. Anyway, Lexi persuaded me it would be best to stay over and make an early start this morning. And where are you now after this early start? Well, that's it, Mum. I'm only two hours out from Barcordin. See, when we went out to start the Lancer this morning, I found it as flat as a pancake. We couldn't get it started. It's the battery. Been giving me trouble all term. So why didn't you buy a new one? Yeah, well, I suppose I should have, but... But you spent all your money on partying? Jane didn't hear all of her mother's input or disapproval as she spoke right over her, but there was little doubt of the reaction. Anyway, Lexi kindly offered I drive her car back and she's going to get Trevor to fix mine. He can recharge it fully over the weekend. 
They're heading off to the lakes for a camping trip after lunch, so we'll give him a chance to give the Lancer a fine tune and see how it goes. We'll swap again on the return journey. The two women argued back and forth about the ideals of this plan, exchanging excuses and retorts, defences and responses, with Barbara finally reassured that it would have little effect on the outcome. Janie would still be able to arrive in a reasonable time to freshen up and change for the party. They parted in good humour, and the mutual exchange was that each have a pleasant day. A few minutes later, Barbara was relaying all of this new information to a sceptic Robert, and Jane was back on the open road. Both parents and daughter had had a busy day ahead, and it was pointless using up more time and energy on a fait accompli. Putting her mobile away and back on the highway, Jane felt light-hearted. First of all, it was a pleasure to drive a new, well, newish car for a change. The poor old Lancer was well over its shoes by date, but she could only dream about trading it in. Then again, the conversation with Alexis last night had offered lots of insights into career options Jane had not considered since leaving uni, and the road ahead would offer plenty of opportunity to think them through. She decided she would have to average out at 100 kilometers an hour in order to arrive at her parents' home in Brisbane in time to prepare for the evening's festivities. She would have to be neat and tidy for the grandparents and the aunts, the next-door neighbors, old-school chums. Janie groaned, still disappointed she could not be planning a rave with her new friends in her new grown-up life. The highway was in good repair and the car hummed. There were not many other cars on the road and driving was a positive pleasure. She groped in the glove box to see what CDs her friends had had and was delighted to find a mixture of old favourites. This was going to be a good trip. The fairy lights were up, the pot plants cleared, the front and back lawns mowed and Robert was hoping Barbara would soon give the thumbs up for lunch when he heard the telephone yet again. This time, Barbara jumped on it, thinking it was the caterer giving advance warning of his delivery. She was surprised to hear Janie's voice. Hi Mum, me again. I just had a thought. Did you get around to inviting David? Her mother smiled. As a matter of fact, I did. You're lucky. He's home just for the weekend with his folks. He'll be coming over with Nana and Grandpa. Tell Mum, that's all. Jane grinned to herself as she flicked the disconnect switch. Oh well, it wouldn't be so bad after all. David had been the favourite boyfriend and it would be nice to meet up with him again. Almost instinctively, she flicked the redial. Her mother's reply was immediate. Mum, if you get a minute, could you run an iron over Over my... the blue sundress? I already have. It's hanging up in your room. I cleaned your blue sandals too. Oh, Mum, you're a saint. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk 400 k's from home, Jane hummed along with Simon and Garfunkel, observing how the sound of silence was so appropriate to the outback, leaving Barbara to run upstairs and iron a sundress and clean some shoes. The Waltons from next door had brought over the last of the spare chairs from the garage and were admiring the patio lights when the telephone rang again. Grateful for the interruption, Barbara excused herself and saw them depart awkwardly over the back fence. Expecting the beer delivery, Barbara answered formally, Hello, Mrs Jarvis speaking. Mum, look, don't get excited, but I've had a bit of an accident. Thankful that her daughter's voice sounded cheerful, if not a little sheepish, Barbara found herself flying questions automatically. Are you all right? Are you hurt? No, I'm fine. But I screwed up Lex's car a bit, hit a roo, and skidded into the one blooming tree I'd seen in an hour. But that isn't the real problem. See, 
When I checked the car, I found a slip fan belt. Well, I fixed it up, temp-like, like Dad taught me, and decided to turn back and call into a property I saw a few k's back. But, see, well, now I'm at the homestead, no one's home. It looks as if the property has been vacant a while. Barbara Jarvis listened to her daughter's tale of woe in a mixture of anger at the idiocy of her daughter's actions, upset that she did not look as if she would be attending her own party on time, and a little nod of anxiety at the unknown. Before she could convey much of this, Jane went on. The thing is, Mum, I don't know if Lexi is covered by road insurance. I've tried ringing her, but I don't know her mobile number, and her landline isn't answering. Well, she's probably out or even up on her way to the campsite. Could you ask Dad what I should do now? Relaying this to Robert in cryptic fashion by having to shout to him in the garage did not improve Barbara's nerves. So... Where is she, exactly? His male supremacy was evident when the message came back that his daughter could provide only a rough estimate. She says she's about an hour and a half out of Injun, and the property is on the left-hand side of the highway. Barbara told him. She left out Jenny's reasoning. I left the car out on the road because I didn't think the car could manage the gridirons. They were pretty savage for a car with a clunky fan belt. It's going to take me a good half an hour to walk back there, and it's getting hot. At least I've got some shade here around the cottage. Barbara was now becoming a little more than nervous about her daughter's safety, and decided that, busy or not, it was time for Robert to come to the phone. She was in the midst of saying this when Jane's voice took on a timbre of excitement. Hang on, Mum. I think I can hear a car coming. Yes, yes, it's a truck of some sort. This place isn't deserted after all. Look, I'll get the owners to help me out and I'll ring you back. With a sense of real relief, Barbara put the phone down and was on her way to the garage when it rang again. Janie was obviously on redial. Mum? Mum, I'm not sure now. There are two guys and they, well, they look a bit rough. They haven't seen me yet. I'm over by one of the sheds, but I expect they know someone is here. Well, they would have seen the car back on the grid. Should I... Barbara's stomach took a leap. Then she heard a dog bark, and the sound of deep, rough male voices. But her daughter's voice sounded cheery enough, as with the telephone line still on an open line, she heard her call out. Hello? Hello? There's someone over there. Yes, hello, I'm over here. I'm just ringing for help. My car broke down. C- can you tell me exactly where we are, please? Hello. The voices were jarred and indistinct, but Janie repeated their input for her mother to hear, as if to reinforce their directions. So, this property is called what? Trevay. Tremaine? Trevay. Trevay. Oh, oh right, Trevay. I see, yes. From Trevor and Anne. Good. Did did you get that, Mum? It's actually called Trevay. And we're how many many kilometres out from... What is the nearest town? Barbara stood quietly listening, straining for every word. Her feelings were mixed when she heard her daughter's next words. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, wait just a minute and I'll tell my mother. Janie now sounded relieved as she spoke into the telephone. Mum, these gentlemen, wait, one moment, I haven't got their names. Pete. I'm Joe. Pete. Yes, Joe. Pete and Joe are offering to tow me to the next township, so I'll ring you when we get there, which will be about, um, about two o'clock. Yes, Mum, we should be there in about an hour. 
With a continued feeling of relief, she retraced her steps to the garden where she found Robert, sitting back on the newly cleaned patio drinking a beer. He jumped with guilt as she came upon him, but such thoughts of triviality immediately left him as she conveyed the further developments of Janie's plight. Ever pedantic, Rob was still annoyed to find that his daughter was in distress in the middle of nowhere with two strangers her only means of assistance, and was only mildly placated when Barbara's retort that Janie's a sensible girl. She won't do anything silly. The answer came back, almost smugly. She already has. The middle-aged couple talked through all the options available over a quick lunch, yet it was really clear that there was little they could do until their next contact. Both reassured each other that, rough or not, the men were probably nice, ordinary fellows, scratching out a tough living. Even so, they would feel a great deal less anxious on a next call. They both checked their watches. It would be a long 90 minutes. In fact, it was long past two o'clock before they heard from Janie again. The caterers had come with the advance load, the flowers arranged, and numerous telephone calls about party matters, each one jarring at Barbara's nauseous stomach. Where was Janie? What had happened? She was just at the point of telling Rob that they must do something, even though she had no idea what, when the telephone jarred her thoughts and immediately heard her daughter's voice at the end of the line. Mum? Janie, is that you? Speak up, dear, I can't hear you. The line was distorted and Janie's tears were intermittent with muffled half-formed sentences. Barbara's voice was shrill as she put her hand over the mouthpiece and called out, Rob, pick up the cellular phone, quick, it's Janie. In the background, she could hear Robert grumbling about not having time to talk if Barbara wanted the bar stop properly in time. Forcing herself to speak calmly, she said, Janie, dear, I can't hear you. Speak up and try not to cry. Where are you and what has happened? There was a click as the cellular phone was picked up in time for Robert to hear his daughter say, I've... I've been attacked. Dear God! Dear God! No! Barbara was now crying herself, every cautious fear exploding in an eruption of spasmodic gulps. What do you mean attacked? Are you hurt? Did they... She couldn't finish the question, which is every woman's worst nightmare. Robert's voice came in now, gruff but authoritative. Now, Jamie, love, I want to know... Where are you exactly? Tell me where you are. Barbara took an involuntary breath of surprise at her husband's tone, with every motherly bone in her body wanting to castigate him for his lack of sympathy. And is anyone else there? Are your... are your attackers still there? Daddy, come and help me, please. Janie's voice, small and plaintive, was desperate for help. They didn't help me with the car, Daddy. They just laughed and, and they... It hurts. It, it, it hurts so much. Please, please, Daddy, come and get me, please. Again, the disciplined voice, calm but authoritative. Now, Jamie, love, I want to know, where are you exactly? Tell me where you are. That's just it, Daddy. At the same place, like, like I told Mum. I, I parked the car off the highway and walked over the cattle group to, to this deserted farmhouse. Barbara heard her daughter repeat the name of the homestead and then said, I don't know. I, I can't remember. Something like Spine Creek, I think. But, but this place is called Travan. Robert repeated it too. His voice had softened, and from her position at the kitchen phone, Barbara could see him making his way to the old-fashioned bureau where he kept his maps. He fumbled at the drawer, looking at her significantly and indicating she help. Reluctantly, she let her own telephone down as she hurried to find the map of Queensland. The afternoon light was gloomy, and with frustration she realised she had no reading glasses anywhere near. 
She ran to the bedroom where they were kept for nighttime reading. Robert was still talking calmly. Now think, love. Any bones broken? Can you walk? No. Right. And you're on your own now. You're sure of that? You're sure you heard them go? With trembling fingers, Barbara thumbed through the roadmap to the essence, the Spine Creek. No, no, yes, a spindle creek. That must be it. A tiny, tiny place in the middle of nowhere. She showed it to Rob. He nodded, still talking calmly as she ran back to the telephone in her kitchen. Now, Janie, I'm going to ring off now so that I can ring the police. Yes, you can do it too, but I may be able to be a little more coherent. Don't worry, darling. We'll have help with you in a while. I'll call you back as soon as they're on their way. Barbara heard the line go click as Robert disengaged the phone. Even though she knew it to be the right thing to do, she felt a surge of anger as she heard the deadened line in her hand. It was as if the umbilical cord had been cut, severing her from her baby. She replaced the receiver, watching Rob redial triple zero for police. She stood still, with nothing to do. She had a sudden urge to put on the jug for a cup of tea, and almost laughed at herself as she realised the cliché of her actions. Hello, police? Rob's voice was mild and clear. I wish to report an attack on my daughter. She was driving a yellow Mitsubishi number plate... He stopped for a moment, calling out to his wife. Barbara, do you know the number plate of Janie's car? Barbara thought for a moment. Um, yes, yes, it's Janie's initials, JVJ, then... She stopped suddenly. Her oh, face going pale. No, Rob, she's not driving her own car. Remember, she's driving Lexi's car. Her husband's throat contracted for a moment as the impact of this information became apparent. I'm sorry, officer. No, we don't know the licence plate number or the make of the car. There was a long pause while Robert listened to the information at the other end before continuing. His voice trembled. No. Her car broke down somewhere near Spindle Creek, on the main highway. She enlisted the aid of two men who drove up in a truck. No, I don't have the number plate. She thought at first they were the house owners, but now we're not so sure. No, she didn't know their names, just... He looked to his wife for confirmation. Pete and Joe. He gave the names, which sounded more idiotic now than before. There was a silence that seemed to go on forever. Yes, if you wait a moment, I'll give you her mobile number. Rob's voice was cold and distant. Barb, would you have Jamie's mobile number? Barbara froze in thought. No, no. She gave it to me when she first went to the ISA, but I didn't bother to write it down. I told her calls to mobiles were too expensive. I said I would always contact her on the landline. She knew she was gushing. Dear God, too expensive. Her daughter's life at stake and she had worried about the cost of calls. Robert's look to her was recriminating as he spoke with embarrassment. I'm sorry, officer. No, we don't know the number and it will take a little time to find it. We'll have to wait until she contacts us again or... His voice was restrained and quiet. Or she calls you. Another hesitation. But she may not do that. I told her I would take care of it. Husband and wife stared at each other with mounting terror. They were giving the police so little to go on. Robert put the telephone down. He had told the police all they knew. He had hardly cradled the receiver when the telephone rang again. Snatching it up, his face immediately registered disappointment as he heard his father on the end of the line. Oh, hello, Pops. How are you? 
The inane words slipped out before he could help it. Sure. Of course. Then, not able to bear it any longer, he cut it. Look, Pops, sorry. We have a little problem at the moment. We're waiting on a call from Janie. Could I call you back? Barbara had come over to his side and answered his questioning look with a shake of her head. No, nothing serious at the moment. We'll get back to you. This was not the time to pass on their worries. Decisively, the telephone went down. He knew his father would be surprised and irritated, but that was of little account. All could be explained later. He wanted to know if he could bring over a couple of bottles of ale, seeing as he doesn't like champagne. The remark sounded so trite under the circumstances that they both found a grim smile coming to their lips. Before they were settled, however, the now familiar ringing occurred again. Barbara was almost holding her breath as Rob spoke into the mouthpiece. If anything, his voice hardened even more. I see. I see. No, I'm sorry. That's what she said, I'm sure of it. They must have been lying to her. Thank you. I'm sure you will. That was the police. They've gone through their computer files. There is no property named Trevan listed in that area. Barbara let out a cry of anguish. The emotion she had been holding back now flooding through her. He looked to his wife. Don't worry. The police are onto it. They're sending a squad car around here. And they'll have a chopper ready. Why come to us? We're not the one needing help. Can't they send a helicopter up there now? Barbara was bordering on hysteria. Well, they have to come and check us out. These police search and rescue exercises are expensive, I guess. They need to make sure we're not hoaxes. He put his arm around her. But love, uh, these men, this Pete and Joe, must have made up the name Trevan, so it may take a while. <laughs> By now, Barbara was oh, dissolved no. in tears. Oh, no. Her sobs reaching an eerie wail in the empty house. Then, through the distressed sound, once more the telephone. Her hand was shaking so much she dropped it. <laughs> Even when bending down to the floor, she put the receiver to her ear so as not to miss a moment. Mum? Thank God! Barbara straightened up, almost dancing with relief. Janie, help is on its way. We've rung the police. They'll be calling you. Give me your number. Mum? The voice so quiet, hardly audible. I, I can hear it. And, and yes, I can see it now. It, it's them, Mum. They're back. Janie? Jamie, love, hide! Can't you hide? Mum, mummy, my, my leg, it's broken and... and The voice was weak and pain-ridden. Oh, mummy, it hurts so bad. Through the small device that linked her daughter to her, Barbara faintly heard her dog bark, male voices and the sounds of heavy boots on undergrowth. Then, Janie's voice, shrieking with terror. No! Barbara saw the scene in her mind's eye. The vision so clear. Her daughter, bruised, bleeding, terrified, crying out for help. Crying out for no. help. Shrieking with no. terror. No! Please! No, I won't say anything! I, I promise I won't! 400 kilometres away, Barbara expelled hatred and bile as she screeched into the receiver. Leave her alone, you monsters! Leave her alone! Two sounds, intermingled as one. A sound that would haunt her for the rest of her life. A sound that invaded her home, penetrating each room, and would forever echo around her heart. First, the leaden sound of a heavy boot crashing down on a mobile phone, distorted through the miles, distorted through the wires, distorted through the broken vocal cords of her daughter's scream, her daughter's last breath. Please, no! No! And finally, silence.
You have been listening to The Sound of Silence, written by Brianda Cross, narrated by Michael Wilkins, and performed by Maureen Durney, Trevor Bell, and Brianda Cross. The silence is broken as the train approaches. Our next stop, Nanites, a science fiction horror from Jack J. Ward. Produced and performed by Scott Mosher CNY Table Reads Group. Anna, come in. Come in. You'll catch your death out there. It is cold. You said it was urgent. I wouldn't have called you otherwise. May I come in? Of course. Of course you can. It's just... Well, as you can see, I was already in bed when you called. What are you doing? At two in the morning. I was in the lab, of course. We're so close. I couldn't sleep. (laughs) I used to be like that. Each possible breakthrough is like... It's done. Done? Done. But it was supposed to be another three days before... The calculations completed early. Who would have thought? The collective computing power of several hundred thousand computers, all churning away processors, working with our screensaver? It was a master stroke creating a subdivision that simply makes mass-produced screensavers for personal computers, all based on the latest movies. So poetic, when you think of it. A thousand thousand processors, like the very nanites we're attempting to produce. So, tell me already, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> Can I have some coffee? I'm a little strung out. (laughs) And you think that would settle you? Of course. Uh, Let me... It hasn't been that long. I'll get it. I woke you up, after all. Still in the right cupboard by the fridge? Yes, uh, just behind the peanut butter. I don't drink coffee much at home since you... for a while. Okay. So sit already, and let me tell you. So Walter came up with an answer? You still insist on calling the WLT-33 Walter? It helps me to think of him as one of the team. What if it doesn't like that? What? Never mind. Told you, I'm a little strung out. And yes, the AI came up with the answer. I was waiting because I had a feeling. When the lights drew up and the screen flashed... I plugged in. When I started, we used keyboards. Who's telling the story? Sorry, go on. So I put on the headset and went neural. And Victor, you should have seen it. You went neural? I couldn't wait for it to be partial and get the information. I had to go direct interactive. I didn't know if I'd understand it any other way. Did you? Did I what? Did you understand it? Oh, yes. It knew. It knew it all, Victor. It's unbelievable. It was like tapping into the fundamentals of the universe. Like getting into the code of... The code of... of what? Do you know where the sugar is? On the counter by the stove. For Christ's sake, Anna, what? The code. It figured out our purpose. 
Our purpose? It was supposed to analyze how better to design the function of nanites. That's the irony. Or the thing. We built it, Victor. It had only human as a model to work from. So considered humanity as nanotechnology. So... Here. No cream, right? Might as well. I'm not going back to bed now. So it found out humanity's purpose? How... How can it do that? It extrapolated. Imagine the universe as a single organism. Quasars, suns, methane gas, gravity, dark matter, all parts of the greater entity. Now you sound like those Saganites. Maybe they're right. Now I've heard everything. The woman who doesn't believe in marriage believing in religion. Only fools call science mysticism. They do so because they don't understand what the truth is. And you know the truth? I'm only the messenger. Do you want to know? Unless you want to play cribbage at two in the morning with a man in his bathrobe. Tell me. The WLT-33 found our purpose. You've said that. The purpose of humanity. Yes. Well, damn it. This is no time to be coy, doctor. You're not going to like it. At this point, there's little to change that. Drink up. You'll need it. Fine. So tell me already. WLT-33 found out that we're the free radicals. Free radicals? In every living organism, there's free radicals. Like cancer? Like viruses. That's what we do. Human beings go around using up resources, replicating. We're already breaking out to Mars, right? Are you saying we're some kind of cancer to the universe? Yes. Thing is, that's when the wetware reprog began. Wetware reprog? Yes. You know how the neural headset allows us to change code directly? Well, apparently it goes both ways. What do you mean? I mean, WLT-33 was designed to heal the system. It could hardly allow a virus to keep going. So it did what it should have done. What are you talking about, Anna? Reprogrammed one of the nanites to remove the colony. But, but that means... Yes, Victor. That's why I'm here. It was the first test. Anna, you're scaring me. I... 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 I can't move. I... Lots of compounds in the lab, Victor. But why? WLT-33 is working on a new task. We're working on a nanite colony to remove the human infestation. I'm headed back now. The model should be ready before but, the end of the week. But... Anna, no. Prototyping, I... Victor. WLT-33 wanted I... to see if I could start small. I... Wetware's tricky I... somehow. You've got to get around billions of neural nets I... in the human brain, and then you've got to implant exactly the right information. I... That's what took so long, strangely I... enough. WLT-33 knew the answer to our question I... quickly. It was arriving at a solution which took longer. Once you have the solution, it wanted to see if I could remove the last sentimental attachment I had. And... Shh. It's all over. I made sure. Disinfecting you is the hardest thing I had to do, Victor. The rest of the human race will be quick. It's what's best for the greater organism. The universe won't be threatened anymore. Cancer-free. Cancer-free.
You've been listening to Nanites, written by Jack J. Ward. Audio engineered, produced, and directed by Scott Mosier. Starring Crystal Simmons as Anna and David Dean as Victor. Music by Sharon B. sounds that cannot be ignored and can wreck us. Our penultimate stop is Lothar Tuppence, the Tainted Nocturary. The Ninth Ninth Tower Tower Productions. Productions. to tell ourselves stories. Stories. Structures of meaning on which to hang the slowly rotting events of our lives, like flesh on bone. Sometimes we record them in an account of daily events. A diary, perhaps. But sometimes we look in the mirror and know that our lives are abhorrent and that all of our daytime tales are just... Lies. Lies. Masking the truth that we choose hatred over understanding far more often than we admit. When we stumble, trying not to fall under the weight of our collective pain. When we know that our malignancies cannot be escaped or hidden. What is needed is to record these diseased tales in an account of horrid nocturnal occurrences. A noctuary. Noctuary. A tainted. Noctuary. Really coming down there, ain't it? What can I get you, buddy? A Manhattan. Double. Sure thing. Oh, I I forgot. Our Sunday night special is a boulevardier. Half price all night. What the hell is a boulevardier? (laughs) It's pretty much Manhattan, but with some Campari to cut down the sweetness. With a touch of bitter. The boss is trying to cater to you artist types. Make it feel like we're in our own little bohemia here. Hmm. Okay. I'll try one. You are an artist, ain't you? I think I saw you on TV. Yeah. I'm Johnny Lately. That's right. I remember that name. (laughs) Funny pseudonym for an artist, if you don't mind the saying. It's my real name. Your parents thought they were comedians, didn't they? 
<laughs> At least they didn't name me Moonbeam or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Here you go. You want me to open a tab for you? <laughs> Here, keep the change. Well, thank you, Mr. Lately. Sunday, November 1st, 2020. Magical Diary of Johnny Lately. Yesterday I performed the ritual. Just like Eve Holes Jr. and I planned. I'm... I'm just not sure it went the way it should have. I need to figure out what happened. And if anything went wrong. I'll write down everything I remember so maybe I'll see something that I missed. I guess the beginning was when I called her up about a month ago. Eve Holes, Jr.? Eve. Johnny Lately. Johnny! I haven't seen you since Hazel's suit packets opening at the Whitney. That pretentious, stuck-up bitch. What kind of point is she making with that name anyway? <laughs> I think she threw some Scrabble letters on a table while high or something. I do understand your venom. She's not my favorite person right now, either. Yeah. Who does she think she is, calling you a serviceable draftswoman who thinks art flows in her veins instead of curdled milk? I mean, what the fuck? Yeah, I, I got off easier than you, though. I mean, I know we can be a bit caustic in our critiques to each other, but... He's a parasite that regurgitates what others originated and calls it his art? That was really uncalled for. And the way everybody laughed at you... That's why I'm calling you. I'm really pissed off, and I think you are too. I think we both can agree that it's time something was done about that fucking bitch. What do you mean? I mean... <laughs> Remember that weird French book you gave me? The English translation of Le Livre de... Ah, shit. I can't pronounce French to save my life. Just say the Book of Righteous Pain and Rotten Joy. Yeah, I remember. Well, it's not just a book of philosophy and musings from the decadence. It's an actual grimoire. What are you talking about? I'm serious. It's in code. But when you crack it, it tells you how to cause things to happen. I know you used to be into some of that Thelema stuff. And your MFA thesis was on the lesser key of Solomon Grimoire as an object of art. Exactly. So I think we can do this. Look, there's a particular ritual in here. A ritual that will destroy rivals who aren't worthy of their social standing. I'm listening. Eve came over, and I showed her what I had discovered. We then planned to do the rite. On Halloween. The instructions said the sorcerer had to perform the rite alone, as all true art is solitary and individual. So we both did it individually, but at the same time. Coordinated so that each of our final sacrifices would occur right 
at midnight. The ritual seemed to go off fine. The sigil design was fairly easy, and the incantation not too hard to pronounce. Nigenon Pulites. Snerhanan Pulites. Audianon Pulites. Nigenon Uraviseluyon. Snerhanan Uraviseluyon. Audianon Uraviseluyon. And sacrificing the live doves was easier than I thought it would be. Johnny! No! What are you doing? At the time, it all seemed to come together perfectly. I call upon the Asthetes of the Abyss, who will destroy the Pretenders. The Cognoscenti of cursed artists who are brought low by the Falsifiers. I, Magus Jonathan Lately, Invoke your power to fulfill your sacrosanct mission. To sail over any seas to smite your foes. To drown the posers deep in the fetter of islands. To slaughter the minds of those unworthy of wielding the arms of art, and to hang them like so much rotten meat in the devil's beef tub. To preserve transcendent works and give praise to true genius. Johnny! No, 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 no. But since completing the rite, everything feels wrong. And the growing feeling of panic and dread just won't leave me alone. wrong with everyone? <laughs> dead? They're all dead! Where did all these flies come from? No, 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 no. This shouldn't be happening. Not me. You weren't supposed to target me. I'm getting the hell out of here. Get up. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Am I? This isn't Thomas Street. This looks like. Oh, no. no, Johnny. This isn't your city. No, no. We've brought you here to our home. 
the apotheosis of grotesque beauty. I called you to punish my enemies! No, Johnny. You called us to bring the pretend artist to our home. That is our calling. That is what we do. No. No! No! We do it out of love, Johnny. Here, you will learn what true beauty is. Here, you will understand art is more than your parasitical repurposings. I'm an ironic postmodern deconstructionist. No, Johnny. You? You're a hack. Jeez, will you look at this place? About time you got here. Goddamn ritual killings, they always give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. So, what's the story here? The perp is the catatonic guy the EMT team just restrained on that stretcher. Name's Johnny Lately. Uh-huh, right. No, really, that's his name. He's some wannabe artist type. Anyway... He slit the throat of the victim, Eve Holes Jr. She was a fellow artist. Uh, maybe they had an argument. Maybe they were high as kites, I... Pff. We'll know more after the coroner and the toxicology reports. Jeez, what's with all the flies? I know, it's a lot, right? She's only been dead for a few hours. So who called it in? Neighbors from down the hall called. Said they heard him screaming and arguing. With who? Probably no one. They said they only heard his voice. When we got here, he was pleading for mercy to no one in particular. And then... His eyes just rolled up into the back of his head. And he's been like that ever since. Fucking Halloween. Ugh. Brings out the loonies in this town, I tell ya. You know it, brother. <sighs> I'm too old for this shit. Tainted Noctuary, Episode 1, The Beef Tub, was written and created by Lothar Tuppen especially for the Mutual Audio Network and Transcontinental Terror 2020. Eve Holtz Jr. was played by Janet Deiter. All other characters were played by Lothar Tuppen. Moans, wails, lamentations, and walla were provided by The Freesound Project. Music by Lothar Tuppen and The Freesound Project. Sound design, direction, and mastering by Lothar Tuppen. Sound effects by Lothar Tuppen or licensed by Sonus and the Freesound Project. This presentation, as well as the scripts and characters therein, is copyright 2020 to Lothar Tuppen, and this recording is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved.
train grinds closer, and we bring finally this two-part horror from John Ballantyne and Campfire Radio Theater. The Thing on the Ground Floor. Good evening, Campfire listeners. I'm John Ballantyne, producer and creator of this little theater of the mind exercise we call Campfire Radio Theater. I hope you're having a safe and enjoyable October. As you know, it's one of our favorite times of the year. I'm often asked for recommendations for spooky listening during this season. So I wanted to take this opportunity to mention a really terrific podcast that is very much in the same spirit of spooky storytelling as we indulge in. And that's the creepy podcast, helmed by the very talented John Grills. Now, John is a a creative guy. He's always been a friend and fan of our show. And he really does the creepypasta thing better than anybody that I know of. But they also have begun to feature original stories by some very talented young writers. This month, Creepypod is doing 31 Days of Horror. You can tune in every day and catch a new chilling tale, courtesy of John and his talented crew of voice performers. In fact, a recent episode of Creepy's 31 Days of Horror features the short story version of one of our very own Halloween episodes from a few years back, written by yours truly. A certain heartwarming tale of pumpkin carving and bonding with Grandpa over some rather dastardly Halloween traditions. So, hey, that's worth the price of admission right there, which is zero, in fact. Check out Creepy Podcast wherever you listen. And uh, yeah, that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the usual suspects. So enjoy the season and have a listen to some spooky tales, one of which is coming up. Happy Halloween. Welcome, friend. Have a seat by the fire. Make yourself comfortable. The stone pit seemed bottomless, a gaping abyss its interior partially obscured by the smoke which drifted upward to the roof of this vast neolithic chamber. The creeping black mist, oh yes, it was surely alive. An entity with a will of its own. Its voice beckoned, called to them, and sang of blasphemy, filling their ears with a chorus of lost souls. You're listening to Campfire Radio Theater. Tonight, during this most unholy of seasons, we present a haunting tale from the pen of John Ballantyne, a blood offering to the old Hallows' Eve God with perhaps a dash of inspiration from the late great Arch Oberler. The play is called The Thing on the Ground Floor.
So, okay. Are we ready? We're rolling tape on this. Right, rolling audio and video. Excellent. Are you comfortable, Miss Timmons? Yes. You need something to drink? Water, tea? I'm fine. Good. Let's, um, let's take it from the beginning, shall we? You were a producer for the law enforcement reality show, Busted. That's correct. And the incident we're about to discuss took place this past October 31st, nearly a year ago. Now, for obvious reasons, the segment never aired, but we're going to watch some footage taken over the course of that evening. And I have questions I'll ask, and if you have comments to add, please do. Sure. Again, this is not an interrogation. I know you've been grilled by every government agency imaginable at this point. We just want to clarify some things and hopefully further illuminate what took place. So no worries, you can speak candidly, all right? Right, okay. Is this interview going to be broadcast? Only with your consent. It's a chance to tell the public your side of the story. There's still a lot of misconceptions, conspiracy theories. Some even think that this was all just an elaborate hoax. Really? I had no idea. Now, as an on-site producer, you use multiple cameras when you conduct a ride-along with the officer. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yes, um, we have a single camera that follows the action as it develops, along with the cameras mounted on the cruiser, as well as body cams on the officers. Everyone is mic'd, and additional microphones record surround sound and background ambience for the broadcast. That footage is edited to produce each segment. And what do you do as a producer? Keep things on track, ask pertinent questions, make sure we're recording everything that might be of interest to the audience. And that's the role you were serving on the evening of October 31st, 2019? Yes. Your profile says you majored in journalism at BYU. Uh, Right, I'm not Mormon, I just, you know, studied there. And you had aspirations of working for some major news media outlets. Yeah. So... Why Busted, a cop's reality show? Gotta pay the bill somehow, right? (laughs) It's not so easy when you're fresh out of school. I see. Scary, actually. How many segments have you produced for the show? Uh, About a dozen, give or take. So a police ride-along was nothing new for you? It was fairly routine. You know, the usual... Drunken, disorderly situations, domestic disputes, drug and gang activity, but nothing, nothing, well, nothing like what happened. Nothing (laughs) prepared me for that. Cue item number one from the tape. Do you recognize this sound? Never forget it. What exactly is that? What makes that sound, Miss Timmons? 
Roll the tape, you'll see. Trying to run from the long arm of the law Big man with a badge and a gun You surely come to call No one or amongst the thieves All the people that you trust in The only thing that you're gonna get Out of this life now is busted Cause you're busted That's right, mm, down, busting, it's, mm, yeah, you're busting, the channel all comes down. You got all the equipment out of the van? Yeah, should be everything. Okay. Backup batteries, lights, tripod, all that? A tripod? Who does fix shots with this kind of show, Trisha? Everything's fluid and moving. Just want to be prepared, okay? Look, there's only so much room in the cruiser. Just chill. I got it covered. I'm your guy. Hmm, are, right? Are you recording now? No. Shut down the camera, shithead. Stop wasting battery. Hey, hey, hey. Hold that pose. What? There's this, uh, demonic glint in your eyes when you're pissed. Really, Judd? Really? Jesus, again? What do we look like here, kids? Willy Wonka. Don't be cool. There's treats in your camera bag. Hey, kids! Check this out! Can we have candy now? Because I'm really hungry. <laughs> How am I going to beat this nicotine thing if you just keep handing out all of my stash? Oh, please. Here you go, guys. Ooh, Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Great. Thank you. Don't eat too much of it or teeth will fall out. I got a rock. Great. Now, I'm probably going to eat a pack of marbles. Uh, not during the shoot. You're getting on my last nerve, Timmins. Hi there, Officer Coward. I'm Trish Timmins. Nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, nice to meet you. So, we have fixed cameras mounted inside and outside your cruiser. Judd here will be sitting in the back seat with the mobile camera. I'll sit next to you up front and we'll conduct things interview style until you get a call or whatever. If that sounds good? Sure. Great. Officer Coward. That's an interesting name for a police officer. Judd, please stop. <laughs> uh, I've heard it all before. I'm assuming you guys don't normally hang out on the side of town. Not as a general rule. Well, it can be interesting to say the least. When we exit the car, just stay close and, uh, well, you've been briefed on the protocol, right? Definitely. Okay, let's load up and we'll be on our way. Treasure treat! So are things active on an evening like this? Are they more active, less active, the same? Yeah, it's Halloween, so more pedestrians out. Kids doing the whole trick-or-treat thing. Usually we run into shenanigans in certain neighborhoods. You know, older kids. So, how long have you been on the force, Officer Coward? Oh, let's see. Next June it'll be eight years. Wow. So I guess you've pretty much seen it all. All I want to see. It's a big city, so we stay hopping most nights. Especially on this side of town. 
Hey, so, um, what's the worst thing you've seen since you've been on the force? It's kind of tough to narrow it down. Um, seen a few nasty accidents. Murder scenes get pretty grisly sometimes. And these street gangs try to outdo each other. Some neighborhoods are war zones. I guess most recently I ran into a young kid tortured by a gang at Rome's Miller Boulevard. Real bad scene. Some things, you know, you just cannot see. Unit 101, respond to drunk driver collision near North Clearview, 522 Oak, code 1055. Uh, this is Unit 101, I copy. I'm en route to 522 Oak. Be advised, an officer is on the scene. Copy that. What's a 1055? Intoxicated driver. This kind of thing happens every night. Hold on. <laughs> Right? What do we have here? Male African-American on the sidewalk struck by a drunk driver. Non-life-threatening injuries as far as I can tell. The EMS is en route. Hit and run? Nah, driver lost control and struck that uh, hydrant over there. The blue minivan. And she's still in the vehicle, doesn't appear to be hurt. Anyone call city water to shut off that water line? They're on it right now. Hello there. Uh, Ma'am, what's your name? Uh, Can I see your driver's license, please? Yes, sir. Ma'am, I'm going to need you to step out of the vehicle. Have you ever taken a sobriety test before? Yeah, yeah, I know the Easy now. Watch your step. Easy, easy. Now, look, I may be going out on a limb here, but I think you've had a few drinks tonight. Maybe been to a party? Is that a cat costume? Shit! What in Christ was Holy that? Holy shit! Whoa! Oh, uh, probably a meth house a few blocks over. This is Unit 101. Look, we're gonna need CFD, fire, and rescue on the scene at North Clearview. We got an explosion of some sort a few blocks from our current location. I'm gonna check things out. Jesus, look at that fireball. Copy that, 101. We are dispatching fire and rescue team. Advise as needed. Ma'am, stay with your vehicle. Alright, we'll get back to you, okay? Wow, this, this is nuts. Come on, make sure we get this. Judd, now? I... yes. The whole building is gone. Quiet, Judge. Just record the scene. This is 101. We have a three-story building that has completely collapsed. Probably structural damage to the apartment high-rise next to it. It's an old building. Copy, 101. Fire units are dispatched. There's someone in the apartment building. All right, I'm going to take a look. Are you kidding? That place can't be stable. Occupational hazard. Let's go, Judd. Come on. Hell no, I did not sign up for this. Come on! Hey, look, you can both wait here. No worries. Jesus, Judge, you're such a chicken look, shit. I'll record it. Look, look, there's somebody stumbling out of there. Oh my god. Shit. Alright, take it easy, buddy. Easy. Oh dear god. Oh, we gotta get out of here. Whoa, buddy. <laughs> Paramedics are on the way. 
Let's just sit it out right here, okay? You don't understand. Sit down. Take a load off. It's coming. What are you doing? Come on, keep the camera on him. He's missing half of his face. How is he even standing upright? Probably in shock. Stay with him. What happened in there? Can you tell me? The experiment down in the basement. It went bad. It opened something. Unlocked some kind of shadow people. What the hell is he on? Released what? Smoke. Thick black smoke. It's gotta be right out of the fires of hell, man. All the things it'll do to you. And it speaks. It whispers things. Is there anybody else in the building? Well, the shadows. The shadows live down there in the smoke. It's like a bad, bad trip, man. And it don't end. What we got? Looks like exploding meth labs are joining each other. This guy got the worst of it. Sir, are there more people inside? Oh, no, not not people. Monsters. Monsters. Let's get them on a stretcher. One, two, three. Put them on a jet before the pain really kicks in. Just stay away from the black smoke. Well, trick or freaking treat. Any smokers here? Can I bum one? All right. We need to check the building, make a complete sweep. Officer, we're kind of a little short-handed tonight. You want to come with me? Yeah, sure. Your camera crew, are they a part of this? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we're doing a segment for Busted. Okay, just hang close. What's your name, sir? Uh, yeah, Chief Blake Burroughs, uh, City Fire and Rescue. Hey, Jake, take a couple of guys on the upper floors. Check it out, in and out quick. Radio me if you find anything. Officer Coward and I will inspect the ground floor and basement. Got it. Let's hit it. Come on, let's go. You need hazmat gear, masks? Uh, we got our guys checking air quality. Yeah, everything reads clear so far. But, uh, you know, if we get inside, something throws a red flag, we'll, we'll evacuate. So, uh, what's red flag look like? Uh, you're safe. Just follow our lead. All right, let's hustle, boys. This place looks abandoned. Graffiti on the walls, trash everywhere. Hey, be careful now. Use needles right there, right there on the floor. Dispatch, this is 101. Any info on this apartment high rise at North Clearview? Checking now, 101. The complex is known as the Talbot Building and owned by a Dr. Solomon Merchant. We haven't been able to reach him so far. Doesn't appear to be any residents there. Probably just junkies and homeless people. Oh, I, I do not have a good feeling about this, guys. This building's gonna have to be condemned, no doubt about it. Yeah, you think? Check out all the water damage. The structure can't be very sound. What was that? What? I, I thought I saw someone at the end of the hallway. Hello, anybody there? You need to evacuate. What in Christ was that? Shh. I'll check it out. Keep the camera on him, Judd. Follow him. Hello? That 
does not sound like human to me. You know that that scream? Hello? It's very important we clear this building as quickly as possible. You're not in any kind of trouble, okay? There's an open door. Must have ducked in there. Hey, shine your light in there. It's pretty dark. Hey, anybody in here? You're gonna have to evacuate the premises, understand? Hmm, what's up with your radio? I don't know. Have feedback or something. Try yours. This is Chief Burroughs. You guys finding anything on the upper floors? Copy that. What is that? Where? Over next to the window. Holy shit! Sir, we've got to evacuate. We need... What the hell is that? Shit. Run, goddammit! Get out of here! God almighty! Christ, where is the exit? Where's the exit? I don't see an exit. Too much smoke on the other end. Come on, this way. It's a stairwell. We need an exit. Upper floors are blocked by debris. Come on, let's go down. Sure had claws. Maybe, maybe that junkie, the one with the half face. Maybe he was right, huh? There's messed up shit going on here. Still recording. Yeah, it's too dark though. I can't really make out much. Don't you have night vision mode? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's better. What are you doing down ah! here? Oh shit! Oh my god. Oh god. Oh. Holy shit, dude. Again, what are you two doing down uh, here? What are you doing down here, bitch? Don't you know they're evacuating the whole block? This is my building, bitch. Wait a minute, you're Solomon? Uh, Solomon. Uh, Dr. Solomon, uh, Solomon, merchant. Why are you down here in the dark? Look, man, don't answer that. I don't even want to know. What you do here in the basement of your own building is your own business, okay? The authorities think a meth lab exploded next door. Come on, Trisha. Is, is that what happened? Trisha! Possibly. So is that the kind of business you're into down here? Trisha! No. But there is a lab down here. Uh, what kind of lab? Dude! Who's that? <laughs> Never mind her. Events have taken quite a toll on my assistant, Miss Blackwell. Please, follow me. She's just going to keep going on like this, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, 
There you go, dear. Just watch the spinning princess. That's right. Come along. Trisha, this guy, he's a couple bricks shy, and I don't think we can trust him. Just keep rolling. Record everything. This is the story of a lifetime. We're not eyewitness news, Trisha. Excuse me, Dr. Merchant. Yes. There's something upstairs that attacked us. Do you know anything about that? Yes, yes, that would be Carl, my other assistant. Very unfortunate what happened to him. You were kidding, right? This way. Wait, what happened to him? What the hell is this place? This is my work. This place is huge. Stumbled onto it some years ago. Fortunately, property values in this neighborhood are at a bargain. I was able to purchase it for next to nothing, relatively speaking. Several subterranean chambers under this piece of real estate have proven rather fruitful for my experiments. Experiments? Yes. You see, we're standing on something of a fault line of sorts. Only reveals itself once a year. Releases a thick black smoke rising from that pit there in front of us. Uh, something, something burning down there? Burning underground? My friend, there is always something burning underground. It looks like some kind of stone well. How deep does it go? Deeper than I've been able to measure. You see above us? That shaft funnels the smoke upwards to the roof of this building into the atmosphere where it dissipates, becomes harmless. Unfortunately, the venting mechanism has been damaged due to our rather careless meth-head friends next door. Is that smoke toxic? If one comes into contact with it, yes. Most definitely. Okay, well, I really hate the exploding meth house screwed up your haunted attraction. Uh, you know, better luck next year, but we need to be on our way, so come on. Judd! This building was constructed in 1922. They knew exactly what they were doing when they built it over the site. It was a way to keep this phenomenon, for lack of a better term, hidden from curious eyes. A way to control it, study it, perhaps even worship it. But over time, they lost interest, took for granted what they had found here, and eventually this temple became their tomb. What's here? What is this place? A doorway, an opening to the underworld. The fires, always burning. Are we over an active volcano or something? Yes, and no. Whoa! This place is coming down! We need to get out of here! Before you go, I need your assistance. You see that large valve there next to the pit? It opens the vents, which release the smoke. It's stuck. We need to open it fully. It's going to take at least two of us to loosen it. I don't... I don't know, man. If the smoke is released into the city at ground level, it will be a catastrophic event. Are you sure about this? We cannot risk losing containment. Dude, I'm tripping. I can't believe... This is not a game. <sighs> okay. 
Okay, man, let's just do it. Follow me over the gantry. There are steps on the other side. So, exactly what happens if we come in contact with the smoke? I'm sure you don't want to know. No, I do want to know. Let's just make sure that doesn't happen. Now watch your step. What is that? Heated rock magma. It can make some rather odd noises. Christ, what the hell is burning down there? Here we are. You take one side of the wheel. I've got the other. Okay. Trish, you want to grab the camera? Yeah, got it. All right, righty tighty, lefty loosey, right? That is correct. All right, get a tight grip and twist. Get the pass to bitch. It's not moving. There's only one option. And what's that? We run like hell. Warn the others. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah, me too. I suspect this building is destined to collapse on itself sooner rather than later. Unfortunately, the debris should seal the pit. Yeah, this chamber's already filling with smoke. Indeed. Come with me. Here, Trish, I got the camera. Where are we going? There's another stairwell that leads to a rear exit. And if that's blocked too, then what? She's really taking this well, isn't she? How long has she been like this? Several days, ever since she witnessed what happened to Carl. Yeah, can you give a little clarification on that? What exactly- Please keep moving. The smoke is drifting up the stairwell. Uh, I think she's headed the wrong way. What is she doing? Come back, Miss Blackwell. Come back up the stairs. She's headed right for the smoke. Miss Blackwell! The grip on reality has been very fragile since Carl's mutation. Mutation? Yes. Well, it seems various subjects respond to the smoke in different ways. She's gone mad, dog. Yo, Miss Blackwell! You said the smoke was lethal. We need to grab her. There's no reasoning with her. She's fallen to madness. She could die. I can't even see the bottom of the steps anymore. It's too late. To hell with you. Miss Blackwell! Come back! Trish! Miss Blackwell! Come back! It's too late. Oh, sweet mother of God! Ah! 
You have been listening to Campfire Radio Theater. Tonight's tale, The Thing on the Ground Floor, was the first of a two-part audio play written, directed, and produced by John Ballantyne. Featured in the cast were Tanya Milovich as Trisha, John Bell as Dr. Merchant, Linda Waterwick as the interviewer, Mike Fox as Judd, Owen McEwen as Officer Coward, John Ballantyne as Fire Chief Burroughs, Kevin Hotnell as the injured man, and Erica Sanderson as Miss Blackwell and the police dispatcher. Also featured were Blaine Hicklin, Jessica Roberts, Teresa Ballantyne, Amelia Hicklin, James Hicklin, MJ Hotnell, and Avon Hotnell. Production assistance by Michael Davidson. Original music score by Kevin Hartnell. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. Sound design by Evan Anderson and John Ballantyne. Additional sound courtesy of Free Sound Project. Mixing and post-production by John Ballantyne. Share the horror. And visit us at CampfireRadioTheatre.com and on Facebook at Campfire Radio Theatre. When I was 17, I killed my best friend and burned down an abandoned old mansion in the woods. Then I had to live the rest of my life. She moved to Guncotton, West Virginia with the hope that she might finally be able to face the demons she'd been running from her whole life. I think if I went back home Maybe I could start writing again. Little does she know, they've been waiting for her all along. You know you can't ever leave me. You don't even want to. We all have to make traits in life. This for that. But tell me, do you know what is really important to you? Are you feeling well? WSF Productions invites you to brave the foggy streets of Guncotton, West Virginia, the nightmare haze of dream and delusion, and the mists of time itself in this, the fifth season of the West Side Fairy Tales. Scars in Time. A 20-episode sonically-driven horror narration written, directed, and produced by Tyler Bell. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
Learn more at westsidefairytales.com. Welcome, friend. Have a seat by the fire. Make yourself comfortable. The historic Talbot building had remained empty for nearly 20 years, but there were those who still believed it to be haunted, believed that one could hear the mystic voices of the past whispering throughout its maddening maze of hallways and stairwells. And there were the notorious accidents, the grisly fates of occupants who encountered the ethereal black smoke. But these tales were now nothing more than urban legend, scribbled graffiti upon its abandoned walls. And like a silent witness, the old building refused to give up its secrets. Now the only souls that dared venture within its boundaries were either the desperate or the damned. You're listening to Campfire Radio Theater. Tonight we bring you the concluding chapter of our All Hallows' Eve treat, an original tale by John Ballantyne, inspired in no small measure by the grandfather of radio horror, Arch Obler. So, if you feel that seasonal chill in the air, sit a little closer to the fire. Or, if you prefer to set the mood, and perhaps it's later than you think turn the lights out. But whatever you do, we suggest avoiding the thing on the ground floor. Unfortunately, we don't have a clear view in the video of what you witnessed there in the stairwell. Can you describe it? I believe what I saw was Miss Blackwell. She survived the toxic smoke. She was alive? I'm not totally sure alive is the proper word. What do you mean? You said she was moving, right? Yeah, but... This sounds really nutty. Go ahead. 
After she was enveloped by the smoke, I, I, I mean, Ms. Blackwell was not intact exactly. She was... It was like the smoke had turned her inside out. Inside out. Her organs were on the outside of her body. Her, her heart beating, pumping blood. Her lungs breathing. Exposed muscle tissue flexing. I could see it all. It was like when you see a body that's been in a horrific accident and it's it's mangled beyond all recognition not even recognizable as as human or only she was still moving I'll never I'll never understand how but she was she she Are you sure the smoke did this? Maybe Miss Blackwell fell or something. Ah, uh, a fall. I don't think a, I don't think a tumble down a few stairs is going to flip your organs to the outside of your body. Okay. Okay. How do you explain this rationally? <laughs> I don't. You think I have a rational explanation for any of this? And, 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 you know, the most disturbing thing? I couldn't do a thing to help. Just run. She was... Do you need a moment before we restart the footage? As you know, it gets much worse. Miss Timmons? Miss Timmons? No, 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 I'm I'm fine. Just a little dizzy, is all. It's, it's, it's tough reliving this thing again. You're sure? Yes. I'm good. Okay. Let's roll the tape. Jen! Jen, where are you? God damn it, you two did not leave me! Jen! Jen! Hey! You motherfucker! Hey, easy, easy. You just scared the life out of me! Cut this way. Come on. Are you okay? I don't even know. At least I'm in one piece. Can't say the same for Miss Blackwell. Where's Merchant? I'm really not sure. Son of a bitch gave me the slip. How the hell are we gonna get out of here? What floor are we even on? Uh, Looks like the sixth floor, judging by the room numbers. We gotta go back down, get to the ground floor. I'm sorry, are you out of your mind? I am not going back in that stairwell. What do you want to do? Take the elevator, maybe jump from a sixth floor window? I mean, that's a better plan than getting caught in the smoke with those things running around. Stupid idiot. Look, this place is going to come down. Shh. Shut up. 
You hear that? How does she even still make noises without a mouth? I am not going in there. Too late anyway. There's smoke coming from under the door. Shit. Who is that? Merchant? Is Merchant? Hey, you two. <gasps> Where have you been? Let's go. We figured we figured you were... Yeah, thought the same thing about you guys. Where's the fire chief? He didn't make it. What happened? That thing we ran into on the ground floor. Well, you don't want me to draw a picture. Unit 101, what's your 20? Unit 101, do you have a copy? This is 101. We're on the sixth floor. Uh, there's just three of us. I see emergency lights below. We read you 101. That'll be our first responders on the south side. Can you bust out a window so we can get a fix on your location? Anything we can use to break this glass? Ugh. Shit, wait. Oh, here's an old chair. Yeah, that'll do. Stand clear, guys. Can you spot us? Affirmative 101. Uh, yes. They're sending a ladder truck up for you now. Hell yeah. They better hurry. No worries, guys. We're home free now. That smoke, it's filling the hallway. Coming towards us. Son of a dick. That broken window. It's probably drawing it right to us. This is 101. Appears to be some kind of fire in the building. You might want to expedite that ladder truck. Copy that, 101. We're seeing a thick black smoke coming from the rooftop. They're maneuvering in a position now. Hang on. Hey guys, we should be okay. Lean out the window and grab some fresh air if you need to. Oh. We're gonna need more than fresh air, man. I'm putting the camera down, Trish. To hell with this. What's he talking about? The smoke, man. It's like it turns your insides out. Dude gives you one shitty case of heartburn. We gotta get out of here. Hold on, Judd. Is there like a ledge? Hey! Take it easy. Of course not. A sheer drop straight down. Christ, take it easy. I am not going to be turned into a human sock puppet. I am not going to let that happen. Judd! Trish, we got to jump. Got to take our chances. Judd, think about this. What are you doing? What? Hey, hey, we are too far up. That is a definite no-go, buddy. Trish, you saw what happened. Judd! Use your head. You can't survive that, John. No, man, you don't get it. That smoke is toxic, and it's coming our way. A few more seconds, we're swallowed up and spit out like a bad cheese omelet. Is he delusional? Judd, this isn't the way. Back off, both of you. Judd, calm down. No, Trisha, you saw what that smoke did. Calm down. Okay, let's talk. There's no time. Hey, Officer Coward. You think if I aim for that car, it'll be a softer landing? As opposed to what? Hitting a brick wall at 90 miles per hour? We're six floors up. Judd, please be reasonable. Look, I am petrified of heights, so you know that this is not easy for me. But I am not going out like Miss Blackwell. There's no way. Look, in case things don't go well, Trish, you know I've been crushing on you for weeks now. And Hey, I would have asked you out, but you're absolutely right about me. I'm just chicken shit. Judd, 
Just step back in, okay? I'll go out with you. Please. Please? <laughs> A mercy date? N no. Thanks, but no thanks. So long, Trish. Dad! Dad! No! Unit 101, did we lose one of you? 101, has the fire reached you? 101, do you copy? God damn it. Why in God's name would he do that? 101. God damn it. <laughs> this is 101. <coughs> We need that ladder ASAP. Hold tight. It's too late. They're bringing late. up the ladder truck now. <laughs> the smoke. <coughs> what the hell is this stuff? Some kind of nerve gas? <coughs> oh, something's swirling in the smoke. Oh, look, it's, like it's alive. <coughs> I can't breathe. <coughs> I can't breathe. <coughs> Officer Coward! <laughs> Officer Coward! So now, nearly a year has passed since the events of last October 31st, and there are still questions, many mysteries. Do you recall anything immediately following the collapse of the building? No. I don't remember anything until just a few weeks ago. Of course. When you awoke from the coma. I'm told I was pulled from the rubble of the Talbert building. Several hours after the collapse. It's no small miracle you survived, Miss Timmons. Many weren't so lucky. In the video we salvaged from Officer Coward's body cam, it appears that you both were enveloped by the smoke. Is that a correct assessment? I believe so. Was it a shock to you that you were not similarly affected by the smoke? That you weren't transformed into some bizarre freak of nature as he and Miss Blackwell apparently were? There was no time to think about it, but yeah, in retrospect, it's kind of weird. Why was I spared? 
Do you have any sense of just what the smoke really was? Did it seem like some kind of experimental nerve agent or something more natural? I don't think it originated out of any lab. It felt alive. Yet at the same time, like stagnant air out of a tomb. It left me violated. Bare. Like I was caught in a massive crowd on the verge of being trampled. And there are countless clammy hands reaching, touching, touching me all over. Have you ever experienced anything like that? No. One final thing. The creature that you first encountered. The one that attacked the fire chief on the ground floor made that awful shrieking scream. Now there's not a clear view of it at any point in the video. Did you ever get a good look at it? Not really. It was dark and I was running for my life. In your opinion, might it have been some form of mutation as well? Maybe. But 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 it was different, like uh, more aggressive, like a like a rabbit dog that's been unleashed. Officer Coward seemed to imply that this creature may have been responsible for the death of the fire chief. Officer Coward was pretty shaken by what he had witnessed, so I can only assume that to be the case. Okay. Well, I think that about covers things, Miss Timmons. We thank you for your time and patience with this whole process. Hold on. I have a few questions of my own, and no one else seems to want to give me answers, so if you don't mind... Absolutely. What happened to Dr. Merchant? I'm sure he could fill in a lot of missing pieces. His body wasn't recovered from the ruins. No one has seen him since that night, in fact. Trust me. The FBI, Homeland Security, they'd all like nothing more than to speak with him. What about the Talbert building? Did they find anything there? I mean... If the authorities found anything, they're not letting on. There's a shroud of secrecy around this whole incident. But in our research, we did uncover some rather curious history on the Talbert family. Curious history? Seems they were heavily involved in the occult. They were members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, or a splinter sect of some sort. Apparently that was a big thing among wealthy Chicago families way back when. The basement of the Talbert building was an active temple where they conducted various rituals. And some of it might even be called satanic in nature. We think Dr. Solomon Merchant was a sort of modern remnant of these folks. Oh, really? Oh, and we recovered one of Merchant's notebooks from the rubble. I guess salvage crews didn't feel it was anything of importance. It's mostly mystic gibberish and formulas that don't seem to mean much, but he does go into some detail about what he was trying to accomplish. I'd be interested in taking a look. Unfortunately, I can't provide it at the moment. We're still trying to decipher a few things, but I can reveal some tidbits. 
Let's see. The pit was apparently part of some ceremonial altar for the mystics that gathered there all those years ago. Do we know where the smoke originates from? Underground lava flows or... No clue. We've had numerous geological surveys conducted and there's no volcanic activity. No scientific rationale for it. Unless you buy Dr. Merchant's explanation. Which is... <laughs> well, he believed the smoke pit was a portal. A portal? To what? In his writings, Dr. Merchant subscribes to the notion that the smoke emanates from fires burning eternally, as he puts it. Burning deep under the mantle. And of course, true to form, these fires become the most active during the season of All Hallows' Eve. Right, he mentioned something about that. He goes on to theorize in his notes that, to quote, the damned can be raised from the fiery depths, pulled from the smoke, and their spirits deposited into the vessel of another person. Presumably one that hasn't been turned into a walking organ sack by this toxic gas, I suppose. I survived the smoke, so I'm the ideal repository for one of Dr. Merchant's lost souls. Yes. According to his notes, the entire congregation of the temple was part of some apocalyptic suicide pact, each of them leaping to their doom into the pit many decades ago. Merchant was attempting to revive a founding member of their order named Hector into the body of his assistant, Carl. But he goes on to say, This experiment was a rather spectacular failure. And something else ended up inhabiting Carl's body. Something inhuman. <laughs> I suppose if you're in the business of fishing souls from a smoky pit, there's no telling what you're liable to end up with. Miss Timmons? Miss Timmons, are you all right? Can I get you some water? I was just, uh, I just feel lightheaded. I just feel lightheaded all of a sudden. You looked like you were about to black out on me. Oh my god, are you getting this? Call a doctor. Get help. Jesus Christ. Hey, we need a medic in room 406. Come on, medic to 406 ASAP. Somebody call security. Miss Timmons. Big man with a badge and a gun You should have come
call No honor amongst the thieves All the people that you trust in The only thing that you're gonna get Out of this life now is busted Cause you're busted That's right, it's a shakedown Cause you're busted mm, It's a crackdown Cause you're busted It's a takedown Cause you're busted Johnny Law comes to town You have been listening to Campfire Radio Theater. Tonight's tale, The Thing on the Ground Floor, was written, directed, and produced by John Ballantyne. Featured in the cast were Tanya Milevich as Trisha, Owen McEwen as Officer Coward, Mike Fox as Judd, Linda Waterwick as the interviewer, Erica Sanderson as the police dispatcher and Miss Blackwell, John Bell as Dr. Merchant, and Blaine Hicklin as the camera operator. Production assistance by Michael Davidson. Original music score by Kevin Hartnell. Sound design by Evan Anderson and John Ballantyne. Additional sound, courtesy of Freesound Project. Mixing and post-production by John Ballantyne. Share the horror and visit us at CampfireRadioTheatre.com and on Facebook at Campfire Radio Theatre. Did you manage to leave before the final call? For the train is about to make its abrupt end again. Thank you for your fine company. And please... Keep out of the cold, but not into the fire. I am, as they call me, the Railway Hobo. And there are other destinations and ports of call. Safe journeys to you all. The Transcontinental Terror is the seasonal anthology series from the Mutual Audio Network and contains stories and frights from a variety of the world's leaders of audio drama, spectral sound, and tales of terror. See you next time on The Transcontinental. Have your tickets ready. It's bound to be a bumpy ride.
Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic and live radio drama. So yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together. 